Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the podcast. As I indicated in our earlier podcast today, we are doing two special episodes around the leak of the Uh, Alito uh, uh, decision regarding the, uh, or draft decision regarding um, uh, the the abortion case, which has caused so much uh, rightful discussion Um, uh, this week. We are joined by terrific group, Dahlia Lithwick, uh, who, as you know, writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast, Amicus. How are you today, Dahlia? I am okay. Thank you for having me back. No, no, it's always it's always great to have you and always great to have Barb McQuaid. Barb is the former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, currently serves as a professor of practice at Michigan Law. Hi, Barb. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. And Stephen Vladek holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law and is the lead Supreme Court analyst for CNN. Uh, Hi, Steve. Thank you for joining us. Hi, David. Great to be with you. So clearly we want to talk about the legal um, implications, uh, rationale uh, 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 of this uh, apparent decision. The Supreme Court authenticated it. Um, uh, We earlier had a, a discussion, a separate podcast, which we talked about the healthcare consequences and also the political consequences. So you guys can really get to the core issues that you've been covering. Let me uh, start by asking uh, each of you uh, what your reaction was and what you think was most significant about this. Uh, Let me start with you, Dahlia. I think uh, I speak for the huge amount of people who were shocked but not surprised, um, who sort of saw the writing on the wall when the court allowed SBA in Texas, the so-called vigilante bill to go uh, into effect in September and then uh, on the shadow docket. uh, And then after you listen to argument at Dobbs, this all looked like it was coming. And I think we came out of the Dobbs argument saying, well, they're going to they're going to really overturn Roe v. Wade. And at the same time, having said all that, the tone and tenor and maximalist nature of this as work product, you know, with the caveat that uh, one assumes it would have been softened over time, but the degree to which this reads like grumpy political talking points that you'd give to an AM radio host is still quite shocking. And the scope of what could happen if this becomes the final opinion is really gobsmacking still. Barb? 
This decision reminded me of my grandmother's death. She died suddenly after a long illness. So even though we kind of all knew this was coming, it still was incredibly shocking to see it on the page. And I think that although, like Dahlia, I think there were a lot of tea leaves that could make us get to this point. The fact that they took this case to begin with, for one, after the lower courts had uh, you know, soundly rejected this 15-week ban, the tenor of the oral argument, I think, certainly suggested there were five votes here. But I guess I harbored some hope, and I guess maybe this is still out there, that Justice Roberts could persuade some of these other justices to honor the precedent of Roe versus Wade and come up with maybe a 15-week compromise. I mean, that's all this case actually needed to be decided. Courts are supposed to only decide the case before them and not reach larger questions. And so it seemed like there was a principled way to say that instead of viability, 15 weeks will now be the demarcation. Of course, that really is just you know, one more chip away. And if 15 weeks are enough, how about 14 weeks? How about 10 weeks? How about no weeks? But instead, we've gone all the way to states just get to say what they want. And so this is really a very drastic change from not only Roe, but also the initial question presented in the Dobbs case. Steve. Yeah, I mean, I, as usual, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to echo uh, what Dolly and Barb say. I mean, I think everything they said is exactly right. I would just add, David, not as the primary point, but as I think an equally telling point is the means by which we have come to learn all of this are so you know, shockingly unprecedented. And that I think that that is at least partly reinforcing um, the points that, that Barb and Dahlia have made, right? Which is we've never had a leaked draft opinion like this. And if we're actually being precise, there are at least three leaks and maybe even four leaks um, that have precipitated all of this news, which also I think is suggestive, not just that this is the earthquake of a substantive ruling that you know, Dolly and Barb have suggested, but that it has really um, created you know, unsustainable, intolerable splits within the court, um, such that people for one reason or another, or perhaps in reaction to each other, are taking what are surely incredibly pitched battles behind the scenes you know, out into the public domain in ways that we've just never seen before from the Supreme Court in cases you know, far less important than this, let alone cases as, as big a deal as this one is. Okay, well, I don't want to fall too far down the uh, Ted Cruz rabbit hole here, but I'm going to go down a little bit. Um, and Dahlia, I'll start with you and pick up on what Steve just said. Um, what do you make of the fact that this was leaked? Um, I think that, I mean, I make a lot of things of it. One, as Steve said, I think unless you really are a lifelong court watcher, you don't fully realize how astounding this is. Uh, nothing leaks. After The Brethren, uh, and you know, which was a book entirely uh, based on gossipy justices dishing, uh, it became absolutely paramount, uh, without a doubt, that nobody talked to anyone ever. And, you know, Chief Justice Rehnquist would sit law clerks down and basically say the amount of time you can spend talking to the press is none. And by the way, you will never work in this town or on this planet again uh, if you talk to the media. And that's been honored. I mean, there's been and, you know, it's been reported. Yeah, bits of Roe v. Wade leaked. We, we've had leaks around 
uh, the Obamacare case, you know, that, that the chief justice switched his votes. We've had hints of this, but the idea, as Steve said, that there are coalitions inside the court that are so determined, presumably, I think, correctly, to pick off either Amy Coney Barrett or Justice Brett Kavanaugh and to get them to modulate or modify their votes, that it's all turned into street fighting for us to watch. That is extraordinary. I think that the other, you know, just briefings that that I would say are that um, this is an institution that is entirely built on the ability of the justices to trust each other and to be able to speak uh, in confidence, knowing it will not leave the room. And it's almost impossible for me to understand how Chief John, Justice John Roberts can get control of his court back. I don't think that there is going to be the kind of trust that allows the justices to work in good faith or even pretend to work in good faith, which I think they've been doing with all due respect to Justice Stephen Breyer. I don't know how this is can be repaired. And I think that the fact that the Chief Justice in his statement was at pains to say, I'm authenticating this document, we're gonna have an investigation. And by the way, nothing about the way we do our jobs is changed is the tell because absolutely everything about the way they do their jobs, I would say for years is about to change. What do you think of that, Barbara? It sounds like uh, uh, Supreme Court in disarray. Yeah, I would say a couple of things about it. One is it's incredibly damaging to the institution because by putting it out there on display, you know, airing the dirty laundry, I think it now becomes much more difficult for someone to change their vote. Uh, if, if you were inclined to change or to be persuaded by uh, a, a draft opinion, you know, say if Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts floats this thing with this 15 week limit, if you are to change your vote now, it could appear that you are succumbing to public pressure. And so I, I think it has absolutely undermined the integrity of the court internally. I also think that to the extent this leak is to be investigated, um, we can't let confirmation bias cloud our judgment. You know, I'll be really curious to watch how uh, Colonel Gail Curley, the marshal of the court, um, investigates this because I think uh, you know um, conservatives were quick to argue that this must be somebody on the left and they need to be criminally investigated. Um, others said it's likely a conservative who's trying to lock in these votes so that they can't change their view. I, I think there are endless possibilities. Was anybody working from home such that a family member or a household worker could have gotten a hold of this? Um, people who are interested in the workings of the court will drive around and dumpster dive, pull, get, pull stuff out of the garbage. If somebody was negligent in shredding a draft, it, it may have ended up in the garbage they put out at the curb and somebody could have picked it up. I, I'm not ready to completely discount the idea of a Russian hacker. I mean, how do they sow discord in this country? By pushing those areas of disagreement and really exploiting them and getting us to argue with each other. That's a possibility. So I think you have to be open to all possibilities as to how this leak occurred, uh, if you're going to investigate it in good faith. So there are a lot of ways to look at this, Steve, in terms of Supreme Court in disarray and or, or dysfunctional court. And you know, we, um, uh, Dahlia and Barbara have just talked about some of them. Uh, we, you know, we also have the spectacle of um, a number of these justices appearing before the Congress and swearing under oath that they would never do something like this, and then of course they did it. Uh, we have other 
strange things going on in the court. You know, Barb mentioned family members. We have family member of one of the Supreme Court justices apparently involved in an insurrection against the United States. Doesn't look like John Roberts has his arms around these things uh, and that we are in fact spiraling down. But I wanna look at it from a different perspective if I could and draw upon your experience uh, you know, uh, 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 as a legal scholar and as a professor. And when you read this ruling, uh, it seems to throw out the window um, precedent, stare decisis. It is wrong on the history. It's wrong on biology. It's wrong, I think, personally on morality. It's, uh, it, it, it makes a pretense of drawing on, you know, sort of originalist thinking, you know, what, it, what was on the minds of the founders. Um, but it, it really contorts itself into a pretzel to try to get there. If the, you know, how, how, as a professor of such things, would you grade um, Justice Alito's work? Well, you know, I mean, we do have a, a real problem with grade inflation in law school, David. So I'd probably <laughs> give it, you know, a B minus. Um, but I'm also a softie. I, I, I do think it's I mean, there, there are a lot of folks. It's funny. There are a lot of folks who, when they saw the draft opinion, said this couldn't possibly be real. It's so poorly reasoned. Um, right. And to which some of us responded, have you ever read a majority opinion by Justice Alito before? Um, right. I, I think, you know, part of what is taking folks aback so much about this is not just the spectacle of the leak and the spectacle of having this opinion and even the headline, right, that the court is overruling Rowan Casey, but that the way the opinion is written really reveals, as, as Dahlia and Barry Friedman and I wrote for the Washington Post a couple days ago, um, just how naked the emperor is, right, just how, how little this is about sort of neutral principles of constitutional law and how much this is about the fact that they now have five votes. Um, and, and I think that the best indication of that is, you know, the sort of the assertion Justice Alito makes toward the end of the draft, that all of this analysis is entirely limited to abortion um, and doesn't have any bearing on, you know, other unenumerated rights or marriage equality or other things that are, you know, also often tied to the same basic framework. In an opinion, David, that not only suggests that that framework is itself invalid, but an opinion that by chucking Rowan Casey to the dustbin um, crosses a red line that we thought the justices weren't going to cross. And so it's not just that it's not especially persuasive. It's that the way it goes about its task leaves us every reason to doubt, right? that we should take anyone at their word for it when they say this is just about abortion and that it opens the door not just to the demise of a right to abortion in this country, but to sort of the scaling back of all kinds of other protections that we have come to take for granted. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR daily brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. 
and we're not stopping there as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Yeah, so I'm going to switch around here from the way we've been doing this. I'm going to go to Barb and then I'm going to go to Daya because Barb, as a, as a, as a law professor, you must have a perspective on this as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we've enumerated some things that were wrong with this ruling, but of course, Steve's last point is, you know, that this was also, you know, you know, essentially the kind of decision that undermines all future credibility. Not only did they lie about it when they took their jobs, um, but essentially they're saying nothing that we've done in the past really matters anymore. You know, power, power, but you know, the fact that we have the power is what matters, and we're going to go in that direction. How do you, how do you rate the work of Justice Alito? I, I think the uh, callous disregard for precedent is um, really damaging to public trust in the court as an institution. Uh, there are a number of factors that courts have agreed uh, are the factors that should be used when considering whether to overturn precedent. It should be done rarely, um, as Justice Alito wrote, it is not inexorable. The example the right likes to uh, trot out is Brown versus Board of Education, which overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, the separate but equal uh, ruling. Um, but a couple things about that. Number one is never has the court before overturned precedent to restrict rights. It may have done so to expand rights, but not to restrict them. And those factors that I mentioned are um, the, the following things should be considered in deciding whether to overturn precedent, um, whether we have a different understanding of the facts and the law, whether the standard has proved unworkable in practice, whether the law around it has changed in such a way that this decision no longer makes sense, and the extent to which people have relied on the decision in ordering their own lives. By all of those standards, there's no basis for overturning Roe versus Wade. Instead, they just say it was egregiously wrong. I mean, that basically just says, we're on the court now, we're different people from who were here in 1973, and so we get to decide, and so we're just choosing the way we would decide it. It reminds me of a case, David, that was decided, I think, in the early 2000s that was called Dickerson. You may recall this was a case that the court took up to review the Miranda decision, and the fact that they took the case made most of us in law enforcement believe, just as you know, I think we all did in this case, that the court was primed to overturn it because why would it take it otherwise? And at oral argument, they demonstrated a great hostility to the Miranda warnings that it did not appear in the text of the constitution, that it was judicial activism, you know, this idea that you have a right to remain silent and uh, you, know, you must be read your rights. Um, and ultimately when the opinion was issued, written by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, what he wrote was, although if I were writing on a clean slate, I would completely disagree with this because I think it was egregiously wrong and there's no basis for it. However, I am persuaded that the precedent of Miranda requires us to uphold this decision. It, it meets those tests. It is workable. People have relied on it. The facts and law have not changed around it. And so even though I would strongly disagree with this, I respect the doctrine of stare decisis. And so we're going to leave it be. Um, that view is what gave the public confidence in the institution. And now to see it just thrown out because the current crop of justices don't like abortion, I think is, um, is very damaging to the court as an institution. Well, and um, Dahlia, 
Justice Sotomayor, when this was being heard, said the court wouldn't survive the stench uh, if something like this took place. Um, uh, for all the reasons that have just been enumerated, um, what, it, what you know, what, and and the decision hasn't been handed down yet. You think it could, you know, that 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 some that that some fear of that may cause them to make an adjustment here between now and when the decision comes out, or you think this is essentially a done deal and we need to just get used to the stench over the court. I think that, as Barb said initially, it's very, very hard now for anyone who was thinking about changing their vote or even substantially softening uh, this draft opinion to do so, because now it looks as though they're buckling under public pressure. And by the way, that's probably why the leak happened. That's why you know, there's a lot of scuttlebutt about a Wall Street Journal, um, you know, op-ed that suggested that nobody should buckle uh, long before we saw this opinion. Um, the Wall Street Journal published exactly that sort of op-ed uh, when John Roberts was going squishy on Obamacare. So it's very, very, once you are using the media to do special pleading to your colleagues at the court or to other justices at the court, uh, it's already unseemly to the point that uh, it, it, it almost is impossible for the court to do anything other than proceed as though they are unaffected by it. I will say that there is, again, on this question of tone, um, Justice Alito is so far out over his skis in terms of you know, insulting the work of Justice Blackman and Roe, trashing uh, passages from Casey that were written by Anthony Kennedy, Justice Brett Kavanaugh's mentor and for whom he clerked. Uh, so I think that the Justice Barrett and Kavanaugh, who again, one assumes are at least somewhat concerned about public opinion, and the public reputation of the court. And you and I have talked about this before on this show, but that's all the court has. They have no army, they have no budget, they have no ability to enforce their dictates other than public opinion. And so when you have Justice Kavanaugh at oral argument at pains to say, we're not making a partisan political decision. And then you have a draft opinion that just pretty much recklessly trashes not just the authors of prior opinions, but every judge who upheld them, it really, really puts Kavanaugh and Barrett who do care uh, because they're gonna sit on this court for 40 years, <laughs> 30 years, whatever it is. Um, it puts them in a really, really tricky position because now they are going to be associated with an opinion that pretty much says to the American public, and by the way, explicitly says uh, in its pages, we don't care what the polling says, and we don't care what you think. We, we're doing this because we can. That's a really tough, tough row to hoe if you are somebody at the center of the court. John Roberts is clearly that guy. But for Barrett and Kavanaugh, who want to be treated seriously and taken as serious, thoughtful jurists and not political hacks, they're really boxed in right now. And I don't know how you get out from under that stench now that this has come out. So one last round of questions here in the time that we've got remaining. Um, uh, and although I, I, I have read 
some people um, online and heard some people say, don't look past this. Don't look at the implications. This is big enough and bad enough. And it's certainly big enough and bad enough on many grounds. And you've enumerated um, all of them. Um, but there are, because it, it sort of guts the rationale behind Roe v. Wade, uh, there are a lot of people who suggest that what might be next might be uh, Obergefell and gay marriage, or that, that you know there are other kinds of decisions that this kind of reasoning, and I use the term in air quotes, uh, might lead to. So I would like to go to each one of you, and I'll start with you, Steve. Where do where do we go from here? Where does this lead? Well, you know, David. I mean, the 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 question I think is is who moves first, um, right? That you know the Supreme Court doesn't create cases, right? Cases come to the court, and so you know you're not going to have a chance for the court to reconsider Obergefell or Griswold until you have a state that passes a law trying to interfere with those rights. Um, and so I'll just say, you know, I live in Texas. Um, I have a feeling we're going to be first. Um, and you know, we already saw earlier this week. Um, Governor Abbott talking about trying to, you know, relitigate uh, Plyler versus Doe, this 1982 Supreme Court case that recognizes the right of the children of undocumented immigrants to go to public schools, um, right? And so, you know, I don't know, David, what the first battle is going to be, but the the extent to which there are conservatives loudly and publicly saying there aren't going to be next steps, I think is really, really arrogant and the sort of very definition of chutzpah, given that these were many of the same folks, including the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, assuring us in 2018 that there was no reasonable likelihood that Roe was going to be overruled. So, you know, I'll just say that I think it's going to be a state with especially reactionary politics that picks one of these canonical Supreme Court decisions and goes after them. Um, and, you know, I don't know that it'll be Griswold or Obergefell first, but I also am fairly confident that, you know, these are political opportunities for these statewide officials that they're not going to pass up. Okay. Um, Barb, what do, you, where, what do you think? Same question. Well, Justice Alito squarely addresses this in his opinion. And he says, you know, don't be worried, folks. We're not going to do anything with contraception or same-sex marriage or interracial marriage because that's different from this case. Those cases, unlike this case, involve no harm. Here, there is this countervailing state interest in protecting uh, fetal life. And so that's what makes those cases different. So don't worry. Um, but the same basis for deciding Roe, um, this idea of uh, a substantive due process right to privacy, is the same right that undergirds all of those cases. And so if you say, well, it's not in the text, therefore it doesn't exist, well, then the same arguments can be made against all of those things. And then I think the response will be, but you said you said back in Dobbs that it wouldn't be. They'd say that's mere dicta. That wasn't the holding of the case. It was just a little aside that we mentioned. And now that we're squarely looking at this actual challenge, uh, you know, we decide otherwise. So I think that can happen. I also think that we, you know, just to give you a little hopeful note, um, I don't think we've heard the last word on abortion rights in America. Um, Roe was only about the due process right, uh, this privacy right that protected uh, the right to abortion. I think there are other rights that have not yet been fully explored. Um, you know, uh, Justice Ginsburg always advocated for an equal protection argument. It is addressed in this opinion, but again, it wasn't squarely raised. So I think that's a possibility. Other arguments are, um, I think, the uh, First Amendment right 
under free religion and the anti-establishment clause. To the extent these laws are based on a Christian view that life begins at birth, how about the countervailing views that, as I understand the Jewish faith says that, uh, I'm sorry, the Christian view is that life uh, begins at conception, whereas the Jewish faith believes that life begins at birth. The Muslim faith begins that life begins at insolment, which is around four months. Um, and there are people who are certainly atheist or agnostic who don't uh, have any of these beliefs. And so the idea that we're all imposing this Christian view on other people, I think, raises an appropriate challenge for uh, under the First Amendment. There's also the Ninth Amendment that talks about unenumerated rights belonging to the people. Why don't the people have a right to privacy that's safeguarded in the Ninth Amendment? So I think there are still some avenues to challenge abortion rights that remain even after Roe is overturned. You know, I want to thank you for that, Barb. I haven't heard many encouraging analyses in the past couple of days, so that's appreciated. Uh, Dahlia, what, where do you think it leads? Um, yeah, I have no encouraging analysis to offer up, and so I'm going to just thank Barb and probably hold that to my chest as I curl up under my desk for the next couple of weeks. But I I think we're already seeing it play out as Steve uh, noted, we're not, I mean, there is in the briefing, even in this case, uh, the suggestion that Obergefell is next. And, you know, that comes up in some of the, the briefing. And I think that we are also already seeing states that are rushing, not just to, you know, not just the trigger laws and the ghost laws that are gonna invalidate row, uh, you know, the day uh, this comes down, but really a creeping world of, and this is the stuff that scares me, David, of criminalization of abortion. We're going to start seeing um, folks who put uh, medication abortion uh, pills in the mail are going to feel that they're on the hook. I think that we have to be very, very serious looking at the rational basis analysis and uh, the analysis that Barb offered about when life begins and that the state has some interest in protecting that using the lowest standard of scrutiny. I think we're going to start to see real efforts to criminalize miscarriages that look hinky. Uh, we're going to see, and we're already seeing around the country, just recently in Texas, uh, women being charged with fetal endangerment. And so I think that we have to be very, very serious, not just about thinking in terms of doctrine. You know, we can talk about, I think birth control is very much perceived by members of this court um, as an abortifacient. Uh, I think that we need to talk not just in the buckets of cases that are going to come up in education and uh, marriage equality um, and other other cases, but I think we have to think very, very seriously about what this creeping criminalization of women's pregnancy decisions is going to mean. And I think also we should be very, very seriously looking at the reality that there is talk of a federal abortion ban and that that is no joke and that we can say, oh, it's okay, phew, it's only gonna affect red states, blue states remain unchanged. But I think as Steve intimated, this is the tip of the spear for a much, much longer, broader project to really, really in deep ways uh, affect the way uh, women not just give birth, but uh, are pregnant and use birth control and IVF and surrogacy. I think that stuff is, is on the table and we should be very clear-eyed about it. 
It is something we talked about in our prior podcast, uh, looking at the health and political ramifications with uh, um, uh, 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 another great panel. And I, I encourage people to listen to both. This criminalization issue could touch upon many things. One of our podcast co-hosts, Dr. Kavita Patel, is also from Texas, as is Steve, and uh, talked about her concerns about criminalization. And it raises the specter, and I don't mean to be glib about it, but of kind of law and order OBGYN, where, you know, essentially the state starts going after you know, and investigating every miscarriage. Um, and that is, a, you know, is an, another grim dimension of all of this. Uh, clearly, we have a, a formal decision to come and all of the reactions to that. And I think as this great panel described at the very outset, you have a court that is at a uniquely challenging moment in its existence in terms of its legitimacy um, and in terms of its credibility. Um, and uh, we're going to have to track that. And hopefully we will be fortunate enough to have Steve and Dahlia and Barb back again, because you guys were great. And for those of you who are following this, definitely follow Steve Vladek, um, Barbara McQuaid, and Dahlia Lithwick at their various locations, because uh, they offer great analysis like this every single day. Um, so thank you guys. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Um, stay well, everybody. Bye-bye.